A pastor's role with a church is both holy and personal. It's supernatural and practical. It's balancing both the proclamation of God's word and graciously loving people. As a pastor, we are called to clearly share and preach the inspired life-giving scriptures that have been passed down from generation to generation, as well as to be with the flock that gathers. You will find those two dynamics going on in churches throughout our country and overseas. Granted, there are some monster, big mega churches that church family may not know the pastor, but generally, in most churches, the shepherd knows the sheep, and the sheep know their shepherd or shepherds. So welcome to the second message of a four-month series on the last book of the Bible. We see this pastor and churches, church relationships played out. So not surprisingly, this message is entitled, Pastor John and His Churches, Part 1. So just a review. Revelation isn't meant to scare us nor confuse us, but rather to bless us. The primary mark of the book of Revelation is called apocalyptic literature, and it's to encourage us. Why do you say that? Well, as we mentioned last week, there are seven blessings in 22 chapters. That's a message we're not to forget, that God wants to bless us. We learned a lot that there's a lot of sevens in the book of Revelation. There are seven lampstands, seven angels, seven bulls, and seven seals. So just by way of review, John is the apostle, what called in the scriptures the beloved one, and most scholars would concur, he is the last of the 12 living apostles. He writes this inspired book of the Bible from the seven visions he is given on the Lord's Day on the island of Patmos. And, it isn't meant to, and it's meant to be read aloud, which we will do each Sunday. We can't exhaustively study and unpack all that's here, but we can take away the blessing and the hope that the lamb wins. That's the bottom line. We will see how the story unfolds of the war versus good and evil, or as one song states, let's see how the story ends before the end begins. The lamb wins. So in a, a preview, as we look ahead, we're going to see a similar structure in each of the seven churches a DNA sample of each particular church. John writes to uh, these seven churches. And here are the seven churches. This is where they are. You can see Italy. This is modern Turkey today. And these seven churches are what's called, uh, was the Roman postal route. And this little island right here, Patmos, is where he wrote from. And note, note that the that the churches are defined by their geography, but they're explained or identified by the supernatural character of what's going on. They're located geographically, but they're defined spiritually. So we're going to look at chapter 2. I want to encourage you to turn and find a Bible. It's on page 1062. These are pastoral letters. They're not letters essentially or primarily for the future, but the then now and the now now. The then on what was happening to their churches then and also how they can speak to us now. 
The same DNA structure is in each. And so here's the DNA structure that you will find and to be aware of it. The first is the presence of Jesus. We teach in confirmation this, God is who his names are. When we come to hallowed be thy name, we say God is who his names are. And these are some of the names that you will see in the first four churches. You'll see the Alpha and Omega, which is the Greek A to Z. All the known planets of the ancient East are in his authority hand. He is the best friend. He is my best friend who knows me. The other name that you'll see in the next one is the first and last, the one who died and came back to life again. He is the firstborn of the dead and the first of the definitely not dead anymore. That's him. You find this presence. You see a double-edged sword speaker, one who is lambed to death but has come to life. He speaks words of command and words of promise. And his presence in the fourth one is he's the son of God with eyes blazing with fire and feet burnished with bronze that are strong and immovable and immovable strength. Or as a friend said this morning in our prayer time, everything's fragile, not him. He is strong. So the structure that you're going to see, the DNA structure, Look for the presence of Jesus. The second thing that happens in the structure is there's an exam. He knows. The idea behind the word know is to be fully, completely knowledgeable of who we are. And in this exam of knowing, there's a word of commendation. I see what you're doing. It is good. And then there's a word of correction or rebuke. All but two of the seven churches gets a word of rebuke. He has complete and full knowledge of the hard work of one church, the afflictions and the poverty of another. He knows where, in the third church, he knows where people dwell. He actually calls it a hellhole because Satan lives there. Wow. And in the exam, there's another part of the exam. It's the nevertheless, I have this against you. The eyes of fire look not at someone, but through and into someone. Think of it as this, when the doctor comes in and closes the door and says, Sir, ma'am, this is what the report says. And the doctor lays out the diagnosis. You've been in that situation before? If you have, you know the lump in your throat where you say, can you give me some hope? So in the DNA of each church, there is the presence, there is the exam, and then there's the promise. Look for the promise. How will I know the promise? I'm going to say this. Look for the Nike sign. The Nike sign. The Nike sign. The Nike sign is the Greek word for victorious or overcomer. That's what Nike means. When it's a verb that's used, it means there has been a spiritual battle victorious. When it's a noun, it implies what Jesus imparts inwardly as persuasion. Now you get this as Packer fans. I don't. 
When the Packers win, you say, we won the Super Bowl. I can't relate as a Viking fan. You didn't do anything. You didn't go to training camp. You didn't lift weights. You bought a sweatshirt and cheered. But you say, yeah, we won. You are co-conquerors, co-victors. My time will come. I will probably be in heaven. But anyways, <laughs> let's turn to chapter 2. Look for the Nike sign. Page 1062, we read in Jesus' name. To the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the, of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, Nike, I will give the rights to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil would put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what this... Spirit says to the churches, the one who is victorious, Nike, will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to the idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is, there's the word, Nike, victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, 
your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, but her teaching, she misleads my servant into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and mind, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is, there it is, victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give them the morning star. And whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Lord, you know so well what we are like. Your eyes penetrate into your soul. Your friend Peter said those words when you asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know the full extent of who I am and my shortcomings, my sin, my pride, my faults, my doubt, my insecurities, my sinful habits. You know more and more and more of me, yet you do not turn away. You invite us to the cross to find hope there, to find life there, to find payment there. The power of the gospel is for us and the power of the gospel will hold us as we step into the known future and the future you know full well. Nothing surprises you and you don't learn something new. This we can know with full confidence the lamb wins and because of that lamb winning, we co-win. We are co-conquerors with Jesus' victory. So come, Lord, send your spirit. Use this message as your message and have, give us the ears to hear what the spirit whispers. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a look at a couple of the churches. The first church that we look at is Ephesus. The test is, is losing, leaving their first love. This is the same church that Paul writes to in the book of Ephesians. This is the Ephesus church. And it's really interesting how Paul ends his letter to the Ephesians. Same group of people. He ends his letter by saying this, grace be, be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus. Well, something's changed. Paul is saying, you have an undying love. Decades later, there's a losing of the first love. Paul addressed this in Acts chapter 20, verses 28, when he talked to the elders of the church. In verse 28, he says, keep watch over yourself and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit be shepherds of the church. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even your own number of men will rise and distort the truth to draw away disciples after them. 
So be on your guard. Apparently, they did a pretty good job. Hear his passion, our Lord's passion. He longs for those days of first love, the ones who have abandoned their first love. He's holding up the love letters, if you will, and saying, what happened to those days? The book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 2, says this, Go announce to Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the unfailing loyalty of your youth, the love you had for me as a bride. And the Spirit of God says, where's your first love? Jesus warned us about this in Matthew 24, verse 12. He said, the love of most will grow cold. And the King James Version uses this word. The love of many shall wax cold. Ever try to pick off wax? It's hard and crusty. When your love for Jesus leaves, it impacts your worship, your relationships, evangelistic impact. We love because he first loved us. Love that wants to be with God. Love that loves what the Father loves and hates what the Father hates, loving other believers and practicing the love language of Jesus. The love language of Jesus is obeying. Those who love me, obey. So what's the antidote? Is there any hope for the antidote? It's this. Remember, repent, and repeat. Greg Laurie was really helpful in giving that insight. Remember, repent, and repeat. Don't forget to remember. Don't forget to remember who God is and his godness. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. But if the salt shall lose its taste, how can it be salty? It's no longer good for anything but be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Julie and I use a devotion. We've struggled for years having devotions together. We came across this little book. Some of you know it. It's called Jesus Calling. It's really short. We read it. It takes about one minute before she heads off to work and we go our way. She'll read a paragraph. I'll read a paragraph. We pray. We kiss. Boom. The day goes. It's worked for us. This is what Jesus Calling said a couple months ago. It just struck me. It said this, live close to me. Require, living close to me, it says, requires making me your first love, your highest priority. As you seek my presence above all else, you experience peace and joy in full measure. I am blessed when you make me first in your life. While you journey through life in my presence, my glory brightens the world around you. Read and consume the good news of God before you turn on the TV. Replace CNN and Fox News with the good news. Consume it. Meditate on it. Please hear your shepherd humbly stating this. Young disciples of Jesus are watching us. Are we fasting and praying and interceding for God to move? Are we marked by arrogance and anger and posturing? It is indispensable 
our witness for Christ that love must pour out of us. That's hard. You bet it is. The Spirit needs to do that in and through us. Remember, repent, repeat. It's right there. Smyrna and Pergamum. One tells us the testing of suffering. The other tells us the testing of compromise. We hear the tenderness and the mercy of our Lord as he speaks to his bride in examining. He doesn't rebuke them. He suffers with them. He calls himself the first and the last. The school of suffering is graduate level stuff. When the Lord brings you in the school of suffering, he trusts you. He says he is the firstborn of the former dead. Christianity became a threat to the known world. Roman Emperor Nero, followed by his successor, Roman Emperor Domitian, persecuted Christians and lit up Christians, crucifying them, using them as lanterns on the road. Domitian, who followed Nero, was the first emperor to view Christianity as a threat to the empire. Up to this time, it had been mostly random persecutions. But in Smyrna, but in Smyrna, the bishop that would follow John there was a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp knew John. And Polycarp made this statement at 86 years old. 86 years I have served him, and he has never done me injury. How can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Polycarp was in Smyrna. He was arrested. They asked him to deny his faith, deny his faith and live. And this is what an 86-year-old said. In this letter, we're introduced to crowns, and we'll talk about that more in a couple weeks. But it does say something as well, too, that the one who perseveres through suffering, the one who perseveres through suffering will not taste the second death. What's the second death? Well, we read about the second death in Revelation 20, verse 6, verses 14, and verses 12 through 8. And those who know Christ, their last breath on earth will be their first breath in heaven. The second death is hell. The second death is hell. For those who are suffering, please hear this. Suffering is the graduate school with Jesus. Be careful with those who suffer. You might think, I don't know what to say. When someone's going through a hard time, I don't know what to say. Let me encourage you to do this. Approach the funk, cry, and listen, and hug, and love them, and be careful of trite sayings like God must be teaching you a lesson. Pray with them. Jesus walks with those who are suffering, but often he needs people with skin on. Pergama is a test of compromising. It is the bride who's 
the bride who's in love, but the bride must be one who walks in truth. To be a Christian is to commit to a monogamous relationship with the lover of our souls. I want to focus on Thyatira before we look practically at this discipleship journal. Thyatira is the test of holiness. The bride is to be a living, holy, living church set apart for Jesus. We are not permitted to compromise. We are not committed. We are not permitted to be influenced by the worldview or lifestyle. Holiness is not limited to a list of don'ts or being harsh or mean-spirited. The local church must have discernment. You hopefully have picked this metaphor up, a second metaphor that Jesus has for churches. And the second metaphor is this, a bride and groom metaphor. It's found in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. God's love relationship that he has with the church. He calls it a mystery. And in this particular church, there was an influential prophetess by the name, she, they referred to her as Jezebel. Jezebel is written about in 1 Kings chapter 16 through verse 19. Jezebel was a foreign woman who influenced Ahab, the king of Israel. And she violently imposed idol worship and sexual immorality. In fact, years after, years after uh, her husband died, it was asked, it was told about her in 2 Kings chapter 9, 9 verse 22. How can there be peace when we still have the witchcraft and idolatry that your mother Jezebel started? A Jezebel spirit has been used hurtfully to defame women and put them in their place. That is not the right understanding at all. A Jezebel spirit uses spiritual influence to manipulate or control others, to bring about sexual immorality, to lead others away from authentic faith in Christ and false teaching. Jesus is the one who has eyes of fire and he looks into us. When you think about the look in Jesus' eyes when he thinks of you, what comes to your mind? This beautiful bride as he looks. Have you, seen, have you ever seen a groom who, standing here, looks at his bride, sees her coming down? When the groom is here, he's looking at his bride. He's not looking at other people going, hey, see you at the reception. He's got one focus, that bride. So what do we do with this? The book of Revelation has been called a discipleship journal. Really? Yeah. So, to be a follower of Christ, how do we handle the book of Revelation? The first thing I want to suggest to you, this is written in your bulletin, is be mentored. Be mentored by some people that have walked ahead of us. 
What do you mean by that? Spend time with them. Read about their lives. I, I, I listed several here. First, first love lever. A first love lever was a man by the name of Saul. I, this came across my desk this week. I thought it was so good. Saul was a man after man's heart. If David was a man after God's own heart, Saul was a man after a man's heart. He started really good. He would have made your high school class yearbook by one certainly who will succeed, most likely to succeed. That'd be Saul. Read about his life. Be mentored by him. Second, be mentored. Be mentored. It should say Polycarp. It shouldn't have put Saul there. That's a mistake on my part. I'm sorry. Read about Polycarp. Read his life. This church elder who, who lived. Also, when we come to the third test about compromise, read about Samson. I didn't know this, but Delilah's name, Delilah's name means delicate. Wow. And finally, be mentored about anti-holiness about Jezebel and the caution that comes there. On the back side of your bulletin, there is a, a piece that I found super helpful that came from Scotty Smith's great work on hope in Revelation. This didn't come from me, but I, I loved how it, how it just compared burdensome holiness. We usually hear the word holiness and go, oh, Oh, that just feels like a weight on my shoulders. But I loved this comparison. I wanted to share this with you. Read it. Study it. Look at the difference of holiness that comes from being co-conquerors. And finally this. If you haven't watched, read, or spent any time with Pilgrim's Progress, if you want to know what it's like to go through a journey, Watch Pilgrim's Progress. Charles Spurgeon made it his goal to uh, read Pilgrim's Progress every year because there's so much truth in it in story form. Let me conclude with this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. John, who writes the book of Revelation, his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes Nike the world. This is the victory or the Nike that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Another translation puts it this way, because everyone who has been fathered by God conquers the world. Amen.